0: the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Pray with me. Father God, as we come before this text this morning, God, I pray that you would remove all distractions from my own heart and from every single one of our hearts. God, I pray that I, Patrick Darty, would get out of the way and that King Jesus would be seen here this morning, that we would see your grace. We would see your mercy. We would see the good news that you have given us this morning. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I love an epic story, a good superhero movie. As a matter of fact, what I really love is this. I love visually seeing what I know to be true spiritually which is this, that there is a battle going on. There's spiritual warfare taking place right now, not only in us, but all around us. We are in a battle. And I love superhero movies because they remind me in a visible form about this battle that takes place. Paul says it this way, "...for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness." against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Then he tells us, Therefore we must take up the whole armor of God. Peter says it like this, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners in exile, as strangers to this planet, to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Jesus says it like this in John 10.10. He says, The thief has come to steal and to kill and to destroy. But I have come that you may have life and have it to the full. So this morning, superhero stories remind me not only that there's good and evil, but this story this morning reminds me of the most epic superhero story of all time, that there is this reality between good and evil. i got a couple statistics for us as we start to kind of highlight this reality for us. Every single day, about 160,000 people around our world die. Every single day. That is about two people every single second, to put that in perspective for you. Every week, 1.1 million people die. Every month, it's 4.8 million people. That makes 58 million people around our world who will die in a year's time. And that's not the worst of it. According to Pew Research, about 31% of our world claims to be Christian. And if we just presuppose, if we just suppose every single one of these people who claim Christianity is actually indeed a Christian, that means every single year, 40 million people die outside of a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. 40 million people every single year. And to put that number in perspective... There's only 31 million seconds in a year. That means every single second of every single day someone dies outside of a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. More than one person. And so yes, superheroes or movies remind me that there is a battle taking place in our story this morning, here in the gospel of the Luke. It is the most ultimate superhero story. It is the story of our superhero, Jesus Christ, our victor, our savior. And Luke is telling us this morning that we can have complete confidence. We can put our hope, our trust, everything in Christ. Why? Because he has won the battle that we lost. The problem is that many of us in the church, around our world, we put our hope, we put our security, we put our fulfillment, we put our confidence in things, as it says in Romans, things that are made rather than the creator. I'll flesh that out for us a little bit this morning, but what I want to do for you is highlight this for you in three ways. And I believe it's what our text does. I want to show you the context of our text. I want to show you the confrontation that will ensue after that between Jesus Jesus our victor between Jesus, the second Adam, and Satan. And then lastly, I want to show you the confidence that you and I can draw from this text. So first of all, the context. I love the way our verses begin. It says this, and Jesus. Okay, if you're in an English class and you start your paper with the word and, uh, it's probably not going to give you high marks on that test, okay? Uh, because the word and is a conjunction, Meaning this, it points you to a greater context. Why does Luke start with this Greek word, day? It's often translated as either and or now. Here's translated as and. But why does he start this way? I tell all of our students, when you spend time in God's word, here's the key. You want to become like an investigative journalist, right? You want to slow down and you want to ask, you want to investigate the text. You want to ask those who, what, where, when, why questions, how questions about the text. Luke, why did you start with the word and? Again, he's highlighting the greater context. Well, what is that greater context? Well, in John chapter 3, here's what we see. We see, uh, We see John the Baptist coming on the scene, right? He's saying, we're going to make every mountain low. We're going to build up every valley. Why? Because we want to make straight the way for the king. The king of kings has arrived. Jesus is here. We want to make straight the way for the king. Right after that, we see this amazing divine uh, invasion into our world, the likes of which we have not seen since Genesis 1. Luke is building for us this epic story. In in, in In Luke 1 and 2, he really introduces us to this Jesus. He's really introducing us. Here he's building the drama. He's moving us closer to the edge of our seat. What's going to happen? And so and, uh, later on, right after uh, John the Baptist, again, we see Jesus' baptism. And here we have God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, this Trinitarian invasion into our world where God the Father speaks, this is my Son in whom I'm well pleased where the, uh, where the Holy Spirit comes upon Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, like a dove and remains on him. And then right after that, we have what we looked at last week, which was the genealogy, right? Now, uh, Pastor Tanner said last week, the genealogy for many of us, and this is, uh, has been true of myself as well, for many of us is like... Uh, it's like reading something that we don't want to read, right? It's like an interruption. Uh, to me, it's like, you know, something that might put you to sleep. It's like watching, and maybe I'm gonna get myself in trouble here, but, uh, for me, it's like watching a NASCAR race on a Sunday because there's something about the stroke of those engines that just puts me to sleep. I don't know. If I can't sleep, if I'm wound up, all I gotta do is turn on NASCAR and like literally I'm out within minutes. I don't know if y'all are like me or not, but, um... But yeah, and so it's like, what are you doing here, Luke? You're starting to build up the drama. This divine invasion is happening, all of these awesome things. And then all of a sudden, a commercial break, right? It's like we're moving to the edge of our seats to watch this movie. And the next thing we hear is nausea, heartburn, indigestion, upset stomach, diarrhea. Hey, Pepto-Bismol, right? It's like, what are you doing here, Luke? Don't you know how to tell a good story? Like, do what Matthew did. Matthew takes his genealogy and puts it in Matthew 1. It's the very first thing he does, right? So what are you doing? Or is it intentional? Is what Luke's doing here intentional? Again, the and points you to the greater context. Another thing that's super interesting here is this. While Matthew's genealogy in his introduction starts with the patriarchs, Abraham and Isaac, and Jacob. Luke here has his genealogy wedged right here in the drama, and he doesn't start with Abraham. He starts with Adam. What what are you doing here? He's reminding us of this point, that there is a new Adam on the scene, that there is a second Adam that has come. He's not... Bringing in a commercial break, he's ramping up the drama, the divine, the trinity here with us. And now, the question that's being asked is this. Will this new Adam, will this new general head, will he fail like the first did? Or will he succeed? And we move closer to the edge of our seat. And so our verses begin. And Jesus. Now I want to point out a couple more things about the context. I want to point out how Christ enters the battle himself. Uh, Right before we get to this confrontation, I want to point out to you the context of Christ. What was Christ doing? Uh, It says, and Jesus, he was full of the Holy Spirit, recently returned from the Jordan, which is important because it's the Jordan where he's baptized. It's the Jordan where he receives the Holy Spirit. Recently returned from the Jordan and was led by that same spirit into the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. He was fasting, he ate nothing during those days. Excuse me. And when they had ended, or when they were ended, he was hungry. So, what is the context of Jesus? It's this Jesus enters into the wilderness, he enters into temptation full, he's in worship. He's worshiping Christ as king. He's, excuse me, he's worshiping God, his father. Christ is in absolute worship. Which makes me want to ask, when you're tempted, how will you be found? How are you preparing even now? Are you filling up? You know, Romans 8 is a great chapter um, in the Bible. But Romans 8 teaches us what it's like to walk in the spirit Verses in the flesh. For it's those who walk in the spirit who are able to please God. Because those who walk in the flesh cannot. Indeed, they cannot. Is what it says in the text. So, again, how are you preparing? How are you filling up? Are you spending time with God? Are you communing with the Lord? What is your context The next thing we see from our text, after this context, after this buildup of the drama, here comes Jesus. Will he fail like we did? Will he fail like the first Adam? Next comes the confrontation. And throughout the confrontation, we're going to hear these echoes. So Luke's going to continue to echo back as he did uh, in this divine invasion, he echoes back to Genesis 1. He's going to echo back again to Genesis 1, 2, and 3 throughout the confrontation. So uh, let's look now starting in verse 3. It says this. The devil said to him, If you are the son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. So here's the first temptation. Command this stone to become bread. Now, that may sound a little bit strange to us at first because of this. There's nothing wrong with bread, okay? Uh, Matter of fact, I'm hoping to get some bread as soon as I leave here today because after doing two services, I'm going to be hungry, okay? Uh, There's nothing inherently wrong. It's not morally right or wrong to eat bread, right? It's a neutral thing. But the temptation here is this. He's saying, fill up on something God has not provided. Fill up on this bread. It's interesting. I'm going to put this uh, passage into context through Matthew chapter 7, verse 9. I want you to hear this. I'm going to read what Jesus says about good fathers. Okay, Hear what a good father would do. Matthew 7 says this. Or which of you, if he has a son, and he asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks him for a fish, will he give him a serpent? If then you, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father, who is in heaven, give good things to those who ask him? What is Satan saying here? Why is God withholding from you? Is he even a good father? Fill up. How can you trust someone you're hungry, hungry, you're in the wilderness. You're being tempted. Fill up. Fill up. What kind of father would do this? You know, it's reminiscent of, again, Genesis 3, where Satan comes to Adam, and Adam's told that he can eat of all of these trees. Look, you can have all of these trees. Only of the tree of knowledge of good and evil you cannot eat. Then comes along Satan, Right? Again, what kind of father would hold a tree from you? Look at it. It's delicious. Look how awesome it looks. Is he really a good father? But where Adam fell, the second Adam would not. Where Adam would eat of that tree, the second Adam, Jesus himself, Jesus the man, would say, I trust my father's provision." And so, um, let me ask you, what have you made king of your life? What is sitting on the throne of your heart right now? This never, may not be something necessarily bad, right? For here, the temptation's bread, right? But what's sitting on the throne of your heart that's neither necessarily morally good or bad, but has been elevated to a place that it shouldn't be? Well, how do I know that, Patrick? How do I know if something's sitting on the throne of my heart and it should not be there? Well, let me ask you this. What do you spend your time doing? What do you spend your time thinking about? Let me ask you this. Let me ask it this way. Do you spend more time on Gator Nation and Tomahawk Nation than you do in the Word of God? Do you spend more time thinking about other things, spending time on Facebook or whatever social media outlet you you have? And do you neglect God's word? How do I know? Here's another way. It's one of the ways I tell our kids. Um, one of the ways that God has given us to know whether or not we've made an idol, or elevated something to a place it shouldn't have been. Even good things. Even things like our kids or our vehicles. Whatever it is, we can elevate anything. But here's another way you can tell. What is the fruit that it produces in your life. We always know the fruit of the spirit, right? Which is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. But what comes out of me when someone dents my truck, right? My prized possession. Is it forgiveness? Is it, you know what? That's yours, God. That was your truck. That's your truck anyway. It was your money that bought it. It's your vehicle. I trust you, Lord. Or am I mad? Maybe, just maybe, I've elevated something to a place it shouldn't have been. So the first temptation here for Jesus is this, to fill up on something God had not provided. The second temptation, starting in verse 5, says this. It says, And the devil took him and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And he said to him, To you, I will give all this this authority and their glory. For it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him alone shall you serve. So what is this second temptation? Really, the second temptation is a temptation for uh, authority for control for power what satan is saying is actually really profound if your dad was a good dad would you really be here suffering right now would you really what kind of dad is going to kill their son take him to the cross what kind of dad would do that if you would bow the knee before me right now i give it all to you without the cross you can have it all jesus Why would you die for a bunch of people who hate you? What kind of dad would do that? Follow me. I'm a good dad. Follow me, Jesus. I give it all to you. To Adam, Satan said, look at all this. Doesn't it look delicious? And then he says this, God knows In the day that you eat of it, you will be like him. Take control of your life, Adam. Fill up, Adam. God doesn't want you to be like him, knowing good and evil. It looks good for food, doesn't it? Again, we're Adam falls, Jesus does not. It actually reminds me of a Fleetwood Mac song that I sang in the first service. I'm not going to do here because I'm being recorded. Uh, But the lyrics say this. You can go your own way. Go your own way. That's what Satan's temptation is here. Take control. Go your own way. Live in security. I give it all to you. Forget the cross. Have it all without it. I'm a good dad. Or maybe like Burger King, you can have it your way. Though Adam would fall, Christ would find his greatest joy was communion and obedience to God the Father. And that's where we'll find our greatest joy as well. The third temptation Here in our text, starting in verse 9, says this. It says, And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple. And he said to him, If you're the son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you. It's interesting here that Satan starts quoting scripture to him. He he knows the playbook, right? He starts quoting scripture to Jesus. He says, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. So what is this third temptation? It's this. It's the temptation to prove it. You say your dad's good. I don't see it. Prove it. Throw yourself down from this temple. I think the goal there was probably just to kill Jesus. Because if you have a dead Savior who didn't die for the sins of his people, then you have a bunch of people who are stuck in their sins with no way out. It's like, uh, it's like the kid on the playground Who who doesn't want to do something? Hey, will you you do this or do that? And the kid's like, no, no. And then all of a sudden, all the other kids start going, you know, they start chanting that kid's name, C.J., C.J., C.J. Next thing you know, the temptation's there. And nine times out of ten, with everybody chanting our names, we're going to do the dumb thing we know we shouldn't do. Here, Christ doesn't live for for the world. He lives for his audience of one. He lives for the Father. He finds everything. Again, remember, he is in complete communion. Jesus enters these temptations and walks through these temptations full, in control, in worship to his heavenly Father. So where we have failed, this new victor stands. So what confidence should this bring for us today? Brings me to my last point. Now, um, I've got two scriptures I'm going to read, and uh, they're both from the book of Hebrews. If You can flip to the book of Hebrews if you'd like to follow with me. I'm going to be in Hebrews 2 and then Hebrews 4. Hebrews 2, 14, to the end of the chapter, which I believe is verse 18. Um, if you don't want to flip there, that's fine. It will not be on your screen and is not in your bulletin. But I want you to hear this, because what you're going to see in this is this. You're going to see why Christ was made man, and you're going to see what the temptations of Christ ought to do for you and I today. So Hebrews chapter 2, starting in verse 14, says this, "...since therefore the children shared in flesh and blood..." By the way, that's you and I. "...since the children shared in flesh and blood, he, being Jesus himself, likewise partook of the same thing, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil." And deliver all of those. Again, this is us. He did deliver all of those who, through fear of death, were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation or atonement Uh, For the sins of his people, for because he himself has suffered, you hear that? Because Jesus himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Again, Hebrews 4 says it a little bit different, starting in verse uh, 14, says this, since then we have a great high priest again jesus who has passed through the heavens jesus the son of god let us hold fast to our confession for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize jesus is able to sympathize with our weaknesses why but not one in every uh, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin so what should we do what is the application Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace in our time of need. What is the temptations of Jesus? What does Jesus' success mean for us? That we can now with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. It brings us confidence in our salvation. Why? Why? Because it doesn't depend on you and I. It has nothing to do with us. The work of salvation was accomplished by Jesus. And Jesus alone, on our behalf, the second Adam, the second general head, succeeds where we do not. And so we put our confidence, not in our own abilities, not in our own works, but in Christ for our salvation. And so we draw near Patrick and all of his failures, and all those ugly things of my heart, that if you truly knew, you probably wouldn't let me stand before you today. Christ died for that. And it's not on my work, but it's on his work that I stand we can have confidence in temptation. Why? Because for those who are in Christ Jesus, we'll put on the Spirit, God gives us the Holy Spirit, that we can fight temptation, not on our own power, but through the Spirit of God who lives in us. And so now we can combat the devil with, uh, with the sword of the Spirit, with Prayer with fellowship. You know, I tell our students all the time, the reason why we come to church, the reason why we go to Bible study, the reason why we come to youth group is not to check it off a list. It's not to look good. The reason why is this, because our souls desperately need it. You and I desperately need to be here. Why? Because this is not a sanctuary for saints. It is a hospital for sinners. This is the place you go to be cleansed. This is the place we go to come before the Lord and say, we have failed. We don't stand on our own confidence. We stand in your confidence and we're reminded of that by being here in this place. This is the place where God dispenses His grace. And it's an imperfect place, guys. The church is a rough vehicle, but it's God's vehicle. It's the place where He dispenses grace to both you and I. And so we come. We come hungry. We come longing to be filled up. And we come in the Spirit of God saying, Jesus, we know that our confidence is in you. I'm going to tell you something else about myself. Uh, I'm a passionate sports fan, okay? Uh, Matter of fact, I, I can become too passionate, right? It becomes an idol for me. All right, so I'm watching the World Series and. This umpire must be rooting for the Dodgers, right? He must be do- rooting for the Dodgers because clearly that was a strike that Glassnow just blew by him, right? This was clearly a strike. It's in the little zone that they put up on the screen, and yet the umpire calls it a ball. And, and, and I get passionate, and I get angry. It, and Florida Gators football does it the worst for me, okay? Uh, I don't know what it is, but every ref is against Florida right? They're just all biased for the other team all the time, and so it seems like I just become passionate for the wrong things. So what do I do? I don't watch the games. (laughs) That's the reality. Uh, I'll check it out on my phone from time to time to see where the score is, and most of the time, especially if it's Florida, I'm thankful I didn't watch it, Uh, but I'll check out the score. I'll check out the highlights later. Or I'll at least wait till there's a, greatest, that there's a great difference where I don't have to turn it on and become too passionate about something that's trivial. Right? Or what will happen is this. I'll come back and watch it later after the battle's done. And I don't have to watch all the anxieties because I know the outcome. Brothers and sisters, this morning we know the outcome. It is done. It is finished, Jesus says. In our confidence is this, that the battle has been won. That we're only here for a short time. We're going to live in glory because Christ has accomplished what we could not. And so we stand this morning in confidence. Let me end with a quote from Martin Luther, and then we'll be done. Martin Luther said this, So when the devil throws your sins in your face and declares that you deserve death and hell, tell him this, I admit that I deserve death and hell. What of it? For I know one who suffered and made satisfaction on my behalf. His name, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And where he is, there I will be also. Luke is telling us, you're building the drama of this awesome epic. And what he's telling us is this, is you can have confidence because the battle has been won. Let's pray. Father God, often I, um, I find my confidence in things I shouldn't. God, I'm broken. God, I'm a sinner. But this morning, Lord, I'm reminded that I don't have to do that. I'm reminded that you are my surety. I'm reminded, Lord, that I can put all of my hope, all of my dreams, everything in you, Lord. It might lead me to the cross. But better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. Help that to be the theme of this church. Help that to be the theme of our lives. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.